Hey, this is Sasha Shell. Welcome to the fourth episode of Dear Seekers. I am a writer, an editor, and a podcaster based in Toronto. I write about mostly fashion and culture and art. I love the '90s. You just heard Randy Bergman introduce herself. Yes, she's a writer, editor, podcaster, and she loves the nineties. Although these are all true, she left a few things behind. For example, she was the executive digital editor at Fashion Canada. During her time at Fashion, she won the best website at the PNG Fashion and Beauty Awards for four consecutive awards. Oh, and she has interned at Team Vogue. No big deal. And she's now writing for the Globe, the Cut, Vogue.com, the Kit. The list is way too long, so I have to end here. So here you have some ideas of who Randy is. What I'm most drawn towards her is that she is one of the few people in the fashion industry who takes everything seriously—her work, the blend of fashion, arts, and culture—but herself. She has this sarcastic humor that makes her cooler than she probably knows, and her unapologetic self-deprecation is far beyond I can grasp. Thank you so much, and welcome, Randy, to Dear Seekers podcast. Hi, thanks. <laughs> this has been like I think we have to address this back and forth. I think the first time I reached out to you was back in August, yes, twenty seventeen. And then something came up, and it happened. And then we finally set up a date. And then you got a flu. And the next week, I got a flu. Yep. And it then, was yeah. And then my grandmother passed away. It's just like all these really exciting things that have brought us to this moment. And at, at one point, I almost felt like, oh my god, was the the universe was sending me a message that this is just <laughs> not supposed to happen? Because you know, sometimes like I need to listen to the universe. But... No, it's just schedules and yeah. getting the flu. And everybody has the flu. You can't avoid that. Yeah, and I told my boyfriend that, and he was like, "You gotta mean this is really, really good." So the universe is challenging you、oh, to get、true. there. <laughs> that's a good way of thinking of it, right? In one of the articles, you talk about you're obsessed with like street purse style. Do you remember the article? Yes. So why is that? I am. I love strip. Okay. Well, I think that probably the easiest way to describe it, it or to explain it, is、um, I love the movie Showgirls, and that's where this started from. You know, everybody said the movie was terrible, but the movie is not terrible. The movie is amazing.、Uh, it is so campy and ridiculous and overacted, and I love it so much. But I mean, yeah, that's where it came from. There was a period where I really wanted to work on a project about strippers, and、uh, I started going to clubs more often, meeting girls, and I realized that my fascination with strippers、uh, sort of was based off of movies and TV, which is not fair because that's not reality. And I kind of realized that I had a lot more to learn about strippers, which now I guess to say, if I were to describe it simply, my interest in them is—it's just sort of like in an ideal world. Strippers are a subversion of the male gaze. It's sort of they are there for the male gaze. They're there for men performing sexuality 
for those men to desire them. But at the same time, at the end of the day, they go home with a wad of cash and they're not fucking anybody at the end of the day. So it's kind of a badass subversion of um, the male gaze and the male control. Um, That's what I find really interesting nowadays. But I mean, like, originally, I just loved the style. I love tacky things. I love bright colors. I love shimmery materials. Sorry, I have to pause here for just a moment. When I first heard Randy described her love for tacky things, I almost felt uncomfortable for her. Did she really mean tacky? Did I hear it right? Is there a different meaning of the word tacky that I'm not fully aware of? All these questions were going on in my head, so eventually I had to bring it up and ask her. You put the word tacky out there. It's yeah. not something that someone would usually like to describe their style or their obsession because mm-hmm. tacky almost kind of sounded like a very negative term i it's hard to say i mean like aesthetically i've always been drawn to those anyway maybe it's because i grew up in the 90s and those colors were like that's my memory my sensory memory is just like tacky fluorescent colors um that's what i've always responded to so in a very basic way that's just like what i've always responded to just naturally um but at the same time like it's funny when i was let's say, going into university, I became really obsessed with, like, higher culture, you know, the things that the things that a high school student wouldn't really know. I mean, back in the day before the internet was so prevalent and you could access everything, I was discovering all this cool high culture. So I was discovering Paris in the 1890s to the 1930s and the Warhol world in the 70s and just all of the amazing high culture things that I thought were, you know, at the time I was so obsessed with. I was obsessed with Warhol and I was obsessed with, I mean, maybe that's not even a good example, but I was obsessed with like, you know, Parisian movements, you know, like Dadaism and Futurism and all these things that I thought were so important. And I and I kind of looked down on the rise of trash TV. Like that was around the time when like the Kardashians came out and Paris Hilton was popular. And I kind of was just like, oh, that's so not mean. I, you know, that's so uninteresting. And I'm more interested in watching like, you know, Amelie. And, (laughs) and I just like one day realized that I actually loved trash and I loved all those things. And I sort of flipped the other way. Now I'm just like, oh my God, of course I love trash. Like I am trash. Like I love that shit. I mean, I still love the high stuff too, but now I'm just in a period where I just eat everything up that's like low hanging fruit. I think my like session with trash culture is sort of in the last five years or so. Like it's kind of it, it's pretty recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of. I mean, it's like I guess. I guess you could say it was early because I, that's you know when I was really young. That's when I loved like bright colors and whatever. Just like anybody who was alive in the nineties. But the trash culture thing is sort of in the last five years or so. Although, although it's funny because. There are so many things that I think about now that I loved and I always have loved and I don't think I really realized what they were. You know what I mean? Like, I don't realize how they connected and now I understand. Like, I obviously always loved John Waters movies and, you know, even from a little kid, like when I saw Crybaby when it was came out when I was probably like, what, five or something? I always loved that movie and, which is funny because my sister is 10 years older than me and she never understood that it was ironic. And like, even as a five-year-old, I understood it was ironic. So I think really? I- Yeah, I, I think I always have loved those things. I just think I didn't- how they all connected and obviously you know John Waters is like the father of trash cinema and he informed my aesthetic in that way but I don't think I really connected the dots until now so I mean really the fact that I'm so obsessed with trash fashion that's really been new but like I say it's probably it probably had its origination earlier I just didn't get it 
Life is like a puzzle. It might be confusing when we're looking at each piece so closely, but when the pieces are put together and able to offer us a whole picture, it's such an awakening moment. That's what happened to Randy when she literally unboxed a time castle she made when she was 13. I was never really like a huge fashion person as a kid. I have a time capsule that I discovered that I made when I was 13, and. I never really remembered being so obsessed with fashion. I was obsessed with fashion in the way that anybody was as a kid, like you know, just wanting to fit in and wanting to look cool and buying things at the mall and like just like anybody, and not any more than anybody else. But at the same time, I went back into my time capsule and I found all of these trend reports and cutouts, you know, fashion trend reports and cutouts from magazines of like tons of fashion. And it's ironic now when I look back, or it's not ironic, but it's it's telling, I guess, when I look back and I see that those seeds were there, even though I wasn't. Obsessed with fashion in the way that like other kids are who know more than I did as a kid, but、um, I guess it always was there.、Um, but formally, when did I discover fashion? I guess I discovered fashion in like late high school, and it probably had to do with Sex and the City. I was so obsessed with Sex and the City; I still am. I still quote it like on a daily basis.、Mm-hmm. Um, and like Carrie, you know, just like like any girl, like any basic. Bitch who like discovered Carrie and thinks that they understand fashion. <laughs> that's how the journey started. Yeah, that's totally how the journey started. First Vogue I had bought as an adult. I bought sometimes as a kid, or my mom would have bought it.、Um, but the first one that I purchased myself was the one that Sarah Jessica Parker was on the cover of, like in her pantsuit as Carrie. Or it was like at the height of Sex and the City, and I remember like then kind of that was like the gateway drug into being obsessed, and I just became obsessed with like. Knowing everything and the knowledge of like who's at, who are the designers, what are the collections, and like I just became obsessed with like memorizing all that stuff and knowing all of it and just like eating it up. And、um, it's funny that at the time, like this would have been late high school, so this would have been like grade ten, eleven, twelve. It's funny because that was just before like I was in I graduated high school two thousand and three, so that was just before fashion was so mainstream. Like fashion, obviously everybody's always loved fashion, but People didn't really know that much about the industry until like the early mid two thousands when the Devil Wears Prada came out and the Hills and Sex and City so you and feel all like that it's stuff. More become more accessible or the information. It's the definitely. I mean, both. Like、yeah. it's become more accessible in the way that there's so much more fast fashion available for just on a consumer level, but it also has become more accessible in culture. Like America's Next Top Model, like that didn't exist before. Like, but when I graduated high school and I went to, I, so I went to Ryerson for fashion. And when I did that, like, I was the only person in my high school who did anything like that. Nowadays, probably、mm-hmm. pretty common. People were still going for like normal degrees, you know, at Western and U of T and whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, so that's where my fascination with fashion came. But I, I was never like I wasn't super wealthy, and I went to a private school with a lot of wealthy girls, and I was so obsessed with setting myself apart. Apart from them, because I have never gravitated to fashion as a status symbol. I have, I have a perfect podcast guest because I literally just talk forever.、Um, <laughs> um, I love listening to you. Okay,、yeah. great, that's good.、Um, yeah, I never loved fashion as a status symbol, and that was around the time when status items were so big, like the Murakami Louis Vuitton bags. And I remember there were all these like jappy girls from my high school who just would carry that stuff as a status symbol, and they would just like conform. And at the time, me not having the money to like have that Murakami bag, I tried really hard to be different, but like it looked really bad.、Um, but you try really hard to be different. Was that because you want to be different, or actually being different is another way of fitting in? Um, 
I think I wanted to be different. Like, I don't think I, I think I, I wouldn't say that I was like a total rebel and like punk and like, you know, fuck everybody. Like I just do do my own thing. I, I don't think it was really that because like, I still wanted to have friends and all that. I think it was just sort of a way to set myself apart because I didn't like the way that people approach fashion as just status. Like to me, it was like a form of expression and, and like whether or not I did that well or not was sort of not the point i think it was just sort of like me trying to be like just different right being different did that grant you any prize or actually no. anything no opposite? <laughs> <laughs> no not at all i was like no i in my high school yearbook they did this thing called like will and testament last will and testament and it was like they give everybody in the high school what would be put on your like gravestone or like what would you what would be in your will and they were ironic they weren't like this was sort of like making fun of people and and it was like you know based off of something in their personality and mine was like what they would give me was a fashion sense and I didn't even get that that was like a diss until years later I was like I do have a fashion sense thank god I got like off (laughs) you know scot-free but um they actually meant that I didn't have a fashion sense because I looked different I didn't I wasn't wearing whatever they were wearing right so no I didn't get a prize like it wasn't until I started at Ryerson until I found my like you know they say tribe after you graduate, you went to Vogue or you mm-hmm. interned yeah. at Vogue junior yeah. school? Yeah, I was still in. I interned um, while I was at Ryerson, but it was just Toronto things. So my first internship actually was at Fashion Magazine, and I interned at, um, as the entertainment editor, uh, entertainment like intern. That was my first internship, and then I did some other internships as well. After university, after I graduated, I saved up all summer and then moved to New York in September. And um, ironically, I moved with uh, with my best friend who was one of those like totally didn't care about fashion and then like through the period of university he like came out of the closet and became super obsessed with fashion and then like so we moved together so he moved Mm. to go to Parsons and I had already done fashion so I just went directly into internships so yeah I interned at Teen Vogue and Interview those internships just turned into different jobs and I stayed there for as long as I could until my parents like pulled the plug (laughs) um yeah and when was that how old were you when they pulled the plug oh that was only like that was like a year and a half two years kind of thing oh wow yeah it's different time then than now. People can live with their parents, like, till forever. Almost a cool thing to do that I now. mean, I still, like, I when I moved home, I still was living with them for a few years. I think they just, like, being a Canadian in New York is really hard without the proper visa. And in this, it, like, in fashion, it's really competitive to get those visas, um, especially on the media side. Right. And it, it's not to say that I, I... I had a few that kind of were just, like... Like, it wasn't the greatest path. I think they were sort of frustrated with me constantly, like... Like, I would get, like, a job that would be, like, a freelance gig for, like, a few months. And then I would go to another thing. So I never really had a steady income. And I think they were sort of frustrated with that, but that there was no direction. So they were just, like, we're kind of coming in and paying your rent, like, every once in a while. Like, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think they were a bit frustrated with that. But I, yeah, I mean, I ended up living with them for a few years after that anyway. So you moved back to Toronto after? Moved back to Toronto, yeah. And then I started working at Holt Renfrew as a marketing... It was called Interactive Marketing. It was the website. I was like a coordinator there and then started at Fashion a few years later. Did you move back like willingly? or No. 
Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> you answered no, so quickly. No, 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 no. My dad wow. like literally drove down and like basically oh like pulled me out of like, you know, by the end I didn't even have a home. That was also part of the reason why they were frustrated um, because I, my friend had finished, like I lived with one of my friends and his lease was up and he was like, well, do you want to sign a new lease? And I was like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know. I don't have job security. So I can't sign a lease with you because like I just feel bad so like many I, I, yeah, yeah exactly so I sort of was like couch surfing like whatever the like a little bit better how version long was of, that, that time it was a few months okay so in the end I was living at my friend's like res at Columbia and my dad was <laughs> like you're no like no no <laughs> but you were okay with it I was okay with it she was okay with it we were young like whatever you know but not the greatest but you trying to like figure out or... I was just trying to stay like yeah. it just it was this just like game of chicken of like trying to stay and then you came back unwillingly, got pretty much dragged back. Yeah, totally dragged back. <laughs> absolutely dragged back. My dad drove. My dad. I have dro- the image in my head right now. Oh it's yeah, funny. absolutely. Like sobbing. Like yeah, we didn't. Even, yeah, my dad drove down to New York, picked me up, picked all my stuff up, and drove home in one day. So now like, thinking back, would you say that was uh, thank God my parents did that for me, or rather was oh my God, I wish I my parents didn't do that. Um. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I don't really feel either way about it. I don't feel like, thank God my parents did that. I think I, I don't know. Like, it's, it, it's really hard to say. Like, I loved New York. I mean, by the end, I didn't necessarily love New York because it was really hard to stay and it was just constantly like being uncertain. Um, but if I had stayed a little bit longer, if our, if, if visas would have been easier for me to get, like, yeah, I think I'd probably be happier there. But at the same time, I'm also fine with like the way that it happened, you know what I mean? Like the way that my career went after that. So yeah, I don't know. No definitive answer on that one. Right. You came back to Toronto and then you started a job in Hodes. Mm-hmm. And then how long did you stay with Hodes for? I was there for like short period. I was, I was there for like a year and a half, two years. Uh, and then, and then I got the job at fashion. So Holtz was kind of a diversions for me. Like I was never really super into marketing. I just, I knew a girl from Myers and who had a job there and she got me connected and it sort of was just like, like a good placeholder sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was there, I was still freelance writing and trying to build up my career like on that side and I had a blog at that time that I was trying to build steam up with, which really helped actually. Oh, you had a blog. Yeah, time. I did have a blog. It was called the Katie girls. It was, oh it was, uh, you know, also a sex and city reference. What was it about? It was, uh, well, the name was that episode, you know, that episode of sex and city where well, it's ta- they're talking about the way, the, the way we were and he's and big is engaged and she like oh, comes right, to say right, goodbye right. to him. And she's like, I'm a Katie girl. Katie. Hello. Curly. Yeah. I'm a Katie girl. Um, It's just like, it's about, it was about girls who were different. Girls who were like Katie girls. So they're different. They're, you know, run to the beat of their own drum. They are not, you know, normal what society says they should be. So it was a, and it was the other thing. I originally started it with a friend of mine who lives in New York. And it was sort of to showcase my friends. And I I thought that at the time I, I was frustrated with the fact, I haven't, thought about this in a while i i think at the time i was really frustrated by the fact that the only girls who ever got attention were just like rich socialites and like you know you have money you fall into these social circles and then you become cool because you're like dripping in designer so i think i sort of got frustrated with that because i had so many cool friends that i like weren't really yes they have their own social circles obviously they're like you know very cool in their own right but they never really had any like media attention because they're not part of these social circles so it's just to kind of highlight that and also just highlight my interests like i would just talk about things that i 
thought were cool that like people mm. didn't necessarily give a shit about. So that's what it was about. But that's kind of interesting to me because you almost seem like this insider outsider right kind of person. Well, at the, the time industry. I wasn't. Okay. When did you think you became an insider? Well, I think the time I became, uh, it's hard to say because Toronto, like, it's like whether or not you're an insider, like in the fashion, like world at large, or whether you're a fashion insider in Toronto. Like I still, yeah, of course I'm an insider in Toronto just because I've been here for long enough. Right. I guess I started becoming part of the industry around the time I had my blog, like, you know, 2010. And then I started fashion at in 2011 but like i still feel like an outsider in the global fashion world toronto is kind of a blip can you elaborate a little bit what do you mean by that well like you know i talk about this a lot with my friends like or i used to um toronto scene is so small toronto scene it only has i mean it doesn't even it i mean who even knows how to define it these days once upon a time when print was still a thing like there were three magazines there was like one paper or two papers um now there's not even that everybody knows each other to your point i'm an insider just because like everybody knows each other um but go to international fashion weeks and you're like nobody you know like you are seated in the fifth row or you don't even get into a show or you are there by yourself and you don't know anybody and everybody knows each other and they're all talking you know and it's like you're still kind of you're totally an outsider toronto is a blip on this on the international scene this season's gucci winter show had some models carrying identical wax heads of themselves as they walk down the runway at milan fashion Week. i think milan sometimes gets swallowed up between the creativity of london and the magic of design that we see in paris, paris fashion week sets the shape of things to come in the fashion world and this year the shapes are wide and voluminous Queen has joined us vogue editor anna winter on the coveted frau front row at london fashion week this afternoon for those listening to this episode in real time, we're seeing fashion weeks happening all over the world, but mainly in four major capitals, New York, London, Milan, and Paris. This year, even the Queen attended one of the shows at London Fashion Week. It's no doubt, the stimulation, the glamour, make fashion weeks so desirable. However, there is a but. Fashion week is actually really lonely if you don't have friends there. Um... I don't know about a particular moment, but, like, it really was, like, omnipresent. Like, it would be, like, <laughs> especially in certain cities, like, especially in Paris, it was really hard because there's, because Paris is, like, the big time. I mean, even that is not even a static thing anymore, if I were to say that this is the truth. Um, it's hard to say even what is even happening with Fashion Week in general. But, like, usually in the standard way, like, Paris is the, is the big city. So it's, like, everybody comes internationally. So it's, like, you're not only competing for tickets with people from the States, but you're also competing from with like the Japanese market, the Russian market, the like Middle Eastern market. So the fewer and fewer tickets there are, like sometimes you don't even get into shows. There are certain days in Paris where like, I remember this, where there'd be an entire, pretty much an entire day of shows that you don't get into. So can you you maybe kind of elaborate this a little bit to the listeners who don't know anything about the fashion industry? Right. Or even how it works during the fashion weeks? yeah, yeah. It depends. I mean, it depends on the city, but I'll say for Paris in particular, I mean, generally speaking, the big shows, the one that you, the ones that you care about, you know, you're anybody in Paris. So like you're Louis Vuitton, you're Miu Miu, you're 
Balenciaga, you know, like all the major shows, Chloe, all that stuff, um, Rick Owens, it's invite only. So you can only go if you have a ticket and you can't just get a ticket. You can't like buy it. Yeah, you can't get it unless you're invited. So usually how it works is you request a ticket. So when I was at Fashions, one of the assistant editors would have been doing that for me. And then you just manage your yeses and nos. So you either get into a show or you don't get into a show. And like in Toronto, of course I'd get into any show. I could walk in without a pass and nobody would even question me. But in Paris, like, who are you? You know, there's so many people who are going to all these shows. If mm-hmm. I don't have a ticket, like, I can't get in. I guess it really depends on whether that company or that brand has a relationship with Canada, you know? Like, it, that's really what it was. It's not an attack on me personally. It's just whether or not can- the Canadian market is important to them. And also, the other thing that is interesting about the international markets is that the bigger the shows, the more buzzy the shows, the more off the grid the collections are going to be. So the show isn't going to be in one standard tent. It's going to be wherever the designer has like decided it's going to be. So sometimes they decide to use these venues that are really small. So the invites, you know, get less and less. And then you're cut out from a show that like, even in the past you would go to. Like for example, Dries Van Noten, like we always got into those shows. And I remember there was one year that he did it somewhere like unique and we got cut out because there weren't enough seats. So, you know, that factors into it. These are none of the realities that anybody ever thinks of. They just think like, oh, fabulous, Paris. Um, And then the reality set in that you don't even necessarily go to all these shows. Most of the time, if I didn't get into a show, they would let you see the collection. So I would go to the showroom and have an appointment, whatever. (laughs) It didn't always excite me. It kind of pissed me off, uh, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, depending on depending on what the collection was. Sometimes it was cool to see it close up. So now, And also, even if I did go to a show, I would go again to see it close up just because, you know, certain brands you're interested in. Um, and there's a lot of detail there to see. Do you remember how many fashion weeks you have attended? No. <laughs> <laughs> how many years? Uh, my first New York Fashion Week was in 2007. That was, like, totally me, like, scamming for invites. Like, literally, like, showing up and Which being, like... Which show did you go to? You first oh. Went? Well, I mean, actually, sorry. My first fashion week would be in Toronto. My first fashion show was when I was at Ryerson. And um, we helped backstage at the David Dixon show and the Arthur Mendonca show. Mm-hmm. Um, those were my first shows. But what were my first New York fashion shows? I don't remember. I think, like, temporally, Maybe. Remember? Do you remember what it was like for you to go? I remember, yeah, I remember when I went, I, this was still, again, this was still, like, in the beginning of, like, random people just showing up at Fashion Week. Um, there was no, like, street style scene. It was just, like, bubbling up. Um and I thought that I was so smart and I was going to like outsmart everybody and just like show up. And I like, it worked. I. So you, you actually didn't get invite, but you just, no, just showed but, up. Okay. Well, here's where it gets like technical. Okay. So like in New York or depending on, the, I don't think Paris actually has this, but in New York, London, I don't know about Milan. Milan's the only one I've never covered. I think New York and London and Toronto too. You can just get a pass to the main tent. So anything that's showing in that tent, you could feasibly show up to and like if they had space for you they would let you in that doesn't really work that would never work for anything like major um that would work for things that like there are empty spots for or people like don't smaller show. shows smaller shows are like less buzzy shows you know at the time i was writing for this like small magazine in toronto and i would just like show up and be like i'm from this magazine and they'd be like okay and i would like think that i was fooling <laughs> them but they probably knew what was up and they were like okay fine if there's like room we'll put her in 
And I, yeah, no, I thought it was you so almost exciting. Kind of like use that the sentence I kind of hate now, but it kind of makes sense. Like you I have fate to, to make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was that the case? You think? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. And then, do you remember how you felt when you actually were sitting in the show for like that short five minutes? Yeah, I think I was probably standing in the show. I think I was just like in awe of it. Like at that time, like that was really early. I was only like what nineteen or something or twenty. No, maybe it was later. But I, you know, my experience of Fashion Week was like Sex and the City or The Devil Wears Prada. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like, I felt very much like, oh my god, like I am at an actual fashion show. I thought it was super cool. During that time, like you also talk about, like you get lonely sometimes mm-hmm. attending these shows, and then the process could be tedious and then yeah. repetitive. But after attending all these shows, get to which point that you started to get tired of it, or have you ever get tired of it? I never get tired of an of an actual fashion show. Like I get tired of the process. I get tired of. You know, like I said before, fashion week can, like when you're covering an international week, it can be really lonely. Um, and I got tired of that, like the schedule. But when I'm in a show, I don't get tired of it. I still like literally cry every time. Like, especially if it's like a bit like a certain designer that I'm obsessed with or, you know, um, a really theatrical production. I still, I still love it. I don't get sick of that. And how do you kind of switch the mindset when you're attending Fashion Week? So many things happening, so many people talking, so many new things, old things, mix of everything happening at the same time. And then you go to hotel or whatever you stay and then become this like very quiet moment. And then now what do you do? Like, do you actually have to switch it off or what was the mindset like? Um, I don't think I had to switch my mindset. I think I needed to be, I get really lonely if I'm not with people. I get really sad and depressed. So I think I always needed to be like doing something um, at night. So if it was Paris, for example, I'm just, I keep referencing Paris because that's just like the most recent ones that I've done. I would always make dinner plans with people and just like constantly need to have some sort of plan in order to like not go crazy. But another thing that I did a lot was like make time for yourself to enjoy the city and really doing that was a big thing like I would go to museum exhibits I would go take like a nice lunch I would take like walk on the on the sand you know just like do things like that just to keep your brain like balanced and to keep me not depressed (laughs) (laughs) and what was your role uh, when you started uh, at Fashion Canada and what was the end before you left um I was so I always ran the website um I when I started I was the online editor or digital editor and then I just got promoted to like executive digital editor over the five and a half years that I was there um when I was there when I started there the website was still like very much like a second like a little mm-hmm. baby sister like the print team didn't really give it much time of time of day it was kind of just like nah, whatever um and it was it kind of was nice in a way because I had the opportunity to craft it into what I wanted um, when I was there like a year and a half into, or a year-ish into it we hired um, an associate editor and the two of us really kind of crafted the website into what we wanted it to be and it's a departure from the magazine it really was cool it represented all the things that I personally cared about To Randy, fashion should be more than just fashion Her vision of bringing fashion, arts and culture together really allow her to craft a magazine's online presence into something unique. There was a lot more fashion through the eyes of, you know, the social scene or the art scene or just things that, like, I thought were cool. And then also things that, you know, at the time when I started there, they there was really not much of a representation of stats and really understanding, like, a sophisticated audience and being able to, like, tweak content and tweak strategy depending on what your audience reading um so 
having the ability to kind of do that from the ground up without like, you know, with the monetary support of a big budget, but nobody really breathing down my neck. So that was really nice to do. Um, and then a few years later, once um, the they realized that the internet was a thing, I kind of became more like integrated back into the print team. And my role became a lot more of like, making sure that everybody was on the same page and strategizing from a brand perspective and not just like a website versus a magazine kind of making it all together. But there were a lot of growing pains. Like it was painful. What kind (laughs) of things were painful? Just getting like the print team had been there for a really long time and they were all really like standard print editors. Like they didn't know anything other than the things that they grew up and, you know, did at the magazine. So they were always used to doing things a certain way and they didn't always understand that you needed to evolve or maybe they understood it, but it was it was just not something that they were super interested in doing. So it spent, so it was a lot of time really motivating people to like understand why this is not only something you have to do, but why, mm-hmm. why it's something that you want to do. And do you that, mind give me an example, like what kind of things that the print editors will pursue it, uh, the way, the old fashioned way, the mm-hmm. traditional way. And, and then you might have a different um, take on it. Well, just, I mean, the things about print magazines is that you don't have any feedback, right? So you could write, anything and you could assume that people like it you know what I mean because if people are buying the magazine people are subscribing to the magazine then therefore they like that content right so you don't really have to change that content you can just do whatever you want right but online you can really tell exactly how many people looked at something and how and what works and what doesn't work and whether it's a headline and whether it's putting a celebrity in there and those were things that they didn't really you know necessarily understand and then now they probably do but so for example taking a beauty story that was in print a story about let's say a fragrance and where that fragrance came from and a whole story about its you know ingredients and its um you know birth and provenance um in print that might be really interesting and look really pretty on the page but online that's gonna fall flat so you either don't publish that story online or you tweak that story to work online and just that process was challenging but to me i mean that a different take would be yeah, like, you know, change for number one, changing the headline. Number two, putting some sort of pop cultural reference in there, whether it's a celebrity who who wants that fragrance or there's something else you could connect it to. Right. Um, that is always. And how did you find that? How to find a balance between art and fashion and commerce? Because good things have all these feedback digitally. You can have instant feedback from customers or readers. But at the same time, you also could get a track if all you do is listen to the readers Mm -hmm. and then how how did you find a balance and then to combine art what the vision of magazine was then also still listen to the readers Mm -hmm. I think yeah I have to have a a really good mix I think for me I still really liked interesting content and I never and I never was just pandering to like you know the base number of like oh put a Kardashian in and everybody's gonna love it I think you have to have a balance of that you still do have to have that stuff that you know is clickbait but you also have to maintain the good stuff to your point of view so I mean to your point so um the thing is for me as long as it was interesting and as long as I could see a unique slant like we never we barely ever would cover anything like just in a very basic way there would always be some sort of interesting slant Mm -hmm. to it so I think maintaining that with even the most basic content is helpful. Yeah, I think that's really, you have to have that balance. But at the same time, yeah, to your point, like you do have to, sometimes you will have content that like is viewed less, but it 
pays off in other ways. I think the point is just just to have if something is not a huge page turner, have it be beneficial in another way. So whether it's beautiful visuals that you can use later on Instagram or something like that. For example, our photo shoots, which are a, a, a standard of any fashion magazine, they didn't do well on our website, but they did well on social media. So just like having some sort of way to make that stuff work is essential. Um, and I, as far as fashion is concerned, I think that people really lack an understanding of fashion as a contextual thing in society. Like people just sort of are like, oh, like those jeans are cool. Like that's the new cut, you know, but there's a reason for everything. And, the, and fashion is just sort of like an explanation and a cultural, you know, a contextual marker of other things happening. And I think that that viewing fashion through those eyes really helps understand mm-hmm. its role in everything from you know society to what's going to work on a website also i had a really great boss i had um my you know my my um swimming angie mckeg she came on to the team uh i want to say like about two years after i started and she really helped me transform like she kind of i always followed the things that i thought were interesting and i always you know could make things work on that end but she really helped me she gave me a lot of more tools to help me do that in a big way so without her i don't think it would have gotten to the point to the place that it was um But yeah, I mean, it comes down to just following things that you think are interesting, plus having the tools to make them big. Mm -hmm. In July 2017, Randy decided to take a leap of faith, left Fashion Canada, and started her career as a freelancer. In the end of me being at Fashion, my role became really just almost kind of like managerial. And it was sort of just like making people do things that they didn't want to do. I think that now, and I really wasn't doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do. So a lot of the things I wanted to do, like like writing, for example, I really wasn't really, I really wasn't writing anything that I cared about at all. That's not to say that there weren't things online that I was proud of. Um, but a lot of the print stuff that I would do, it was sort of just like brand work, to be honest. Like I would go on a trip and I'd write about it. And I really wanted the opportunity to write about things I actually cared about, things um, that mattered to me. And now that I'm doing that as freelance, it's also good. I mean, this is sort of where it's going to get muddy because even as a freelancer, like now that I am writing things that I care about, I also don't really give a shit. So I... That's actually the question I want to ask as well, because the compromise that you have to make as a freelancer, not only the financial part, but also, you know, you still have to tailor your voice or your piece towards the people who are paying for the piece. Mm-hmm. And then so to an extent that you still have to kind of compromise that and write stuff sometimes not really you 100% care about. Yeah, I mean, uh, I am writing about stuff that I that I care about. I will. I, I mean, yeah, there's a bunch of things I'm not, I'm assigned that I'm just like, whatever, like, it's fine. Not to say that I don't care about it, just like, it's fine. It's, you know what I mean? It's the thing I'm going to frame. I do a lot of that. You're right. I do a lot of that. But I would say, I will say that a lot of things that I'm writing, at least they're, they are things I'm interested in, but I don't know. I I think I, when I said before that I didn't care, it doesn't mean I don't care about the work that I'm doing. I think it's just sort of like, oh, I've been talking to a ton of my friends who are around the same age as me and everybody sort of keeps coming back to this point of like, I have like an early like life crisis kind of thing where you're like, okay, I've like been working in this field for this long and... Um, I don't know if I care about the same things. I don't know if the benchmarks of success that I thought were important to me, like, are important to me anymore. That's sort of where I'm at, which is interesting. I still, I am writing things that I, that I like, and I luckily haven't had to compromise that much on the things that I'm writing. I think it's more just, like, sometimes I get assigned things that I don't necessarily, like, 
care that much about. Um, but in general, the things that I'm writing are good. There are things that I haven't had to, like, I have never had to compromise on an actual piece where somebody was like, you can't say that because the brand or whatever. I've never had to do that, luckily. But... Yeah, I think I'm just sort of like right now I'm on this path. Like when I was at fashion, I was on this path where I was like, okay, well, this isn't really going to change too much beyond of like what this is. Um, And now I'm on this path where like things could change a lot, but I don't know like what the answer is of like where I want to go with it. And I'm I'm glad you actually mentioned about the benchmark of like the definition of success or back then you, you mentioned you had made a switch. So do you remember before what was your definition of being successful or where you you were hoping to get to head to yeah it's funny I always I I always I think about this a lot lately like what would have happened if I was like 10 years younger um because that happened to me so often yeah currently yeah why I oh my god are we switching the mic now (laughs) um that's why when you mentioned that I kept like nodding my head because Mm. I'm actually exactly at the same point right now. Um, I wanted to be a reporter and I achieved it. Um, I want to do fashion. I started my own startup. Mm-hmm. And then so a lot of goals in my in my life at that time, I thought was my goals. Mm-hmm. But when I was actually doing it, I realized that was not something I wanted to make it. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds cliches or cheesy. It's like that's not legacy I wanted to left behind right. me. And, and I don't think I was doing a make a difference or doing something that I'm actually gifted to do. Mm -hmm. And then I was just doing it for the sake of like chasing after that goal, which it was... That you had set like years before. Set for myself, but I didn't even know where it was heading to. Was Mm -hmm. it money or is it people's recognition or industry's recognition? I didn't know. I thought that was all of it, but Mm -hmm. it turned out like that didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So yeah, anyway, my switch back to you. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll take it back. Um, I... um, Okay, what was the question again? Sorry. Um, no, I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, it was um, benchmark success. Yeah, what was your benchmark then? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, What's your benchmark now? Oh, yeah, now? yeah. No, I was saying I, I, I always wonder what would happen if I was 10 years younger because now the industry has changed so much. And when I was starting out, the industry was like just barely starting to change. So when I was, you know, living my Carrie Bradshaw, you know, wannabe life, I was like, I just want to be a really, like, cool editor with, like, all of these amazing things that I get to do. And, like, I want to be Anna Wintour one day. And, like, that was really, like, a very small, like, like you say, it's, like, a very small goal of, like, I want to work in fashion or, ah, you know, I want this, like, fabulous life. And, like, that was a goal that I set when I was, like, what, like, 17? Yeah. Um, like, the obvious kind of goal. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. And since that happened the industry has changed like a million times over. There's a huge emphasis on starting your own thing that never really was present when I was that age. Like it was sort of like get a job somewhere. Now it's like create your own job. Like, you know, younger millennials are all about doing, they're creating their own opportunities. So now I'm so like stressed out by that because I'm like, (laughs) you know, because now I'm like, what the fuck is my opportunity? You know, so um, I don't know. Like, yeah, like I, I had, that's, sort of what I had set years ago and like yeah you meet any benchmark that you meet immediately you don't give a shit you know what I mean I was actually just talking about this with my best friend like 
nowadays when someone offers, it's happened to me a lot recently where because people know I'm freelance, so people come to me with opportunities and people offer me these great opportunities. And like the immediate thing that happens is I'm like, okay, like sure. And then that night I have a horrible night of sleep. I have a nightmare and I wake up miserable. Like what the fuck? Like that doesn't make sense at all. You know what I mean? Like somebody offering you a great opportunity should make you happy. And it doesn't because I just keep on coming back to this point of like, oh, it's not important enough and it's not like something that I am so psyched about and therefore it's bad and I I don't know, right. you know? So it's- There's actually a saying that uh, had been registered with me for a while is um, by Oscar and then he said, um, there are two tragedies. Oscar in De La Renta or uh, Oscar Wilde? Wilde. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that's true. We need to clarify that. Um, so he, he said- you know, there's are two tragedies in life. One is you can one cannot get what he wants or she wants it, and then the second one is she gets it or she, he gets it. Right. Yeah. And then it's like you know, once you re- reach that benchmark, it doesn't really matter anymore. Like yeah. And I know we need to be grateful. Like yes, things, yes, but, yes. But at the same time, it's like it's really hard to pass on that too. It is. It's like you know. Um, yeah. It's like, and I think it's really common with a lot of people our age because we were sort of raised you know, our generation was very much raised like, you are amazing. You are like, you are, you know what I mean? Like, at least my parents, you're I mean, unique. I, yeah, you're so unique. You can like, do you know, anything you exactly. Want. Like yeah. my parents are like, you are the best. Like you, you know, and I sort of was raised with that. Like, not that I was super cocky. I wasn't younger, you know, when I was younger, but I sort of just had this feeling like I'm going to do whatever my mindset's like sets out to do. And I do them. And then I'm like, well, what next? Like, you know, yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah. Sitting at the role of accepting submissions from freelancers and then from writers, now to sitting on the other side of the chair, did you feel like that um, because you were sitting on the other side of the chair, so you kind of know how the game or the role has been playing for like submission for editors and then for... Yeah. I actually find that really challenging, to be honest. I find it a bit frustrating. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things, like, yes, being a freelancer, you get to have more creativity and creative control. I mean, actually, I don't know if you get creative control, but you have more creativity or the options to do things that you don't have to worry about the stats. You can just, like, do something that you want. But at the same time, I really did love running a website and I really did love having those things under my control. And I really was obsessed with stats and I really did love perfecting things and managing things. So it is sometimes challenging to have no control over any of that and, and be writing for people who like don't understand it in the way that you think, you know, not to say that everybody, but uh, there have definitely been cases where I've been working for somebody who like doesn't get what works. Um, so those things are frustrating to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, and also sometimes it's frustrating if I have a good idea and I'm just like, you know, I when I was on full-time staff, I could just be like, this is a good idea. I'm just going to do this. You know, whether it would work out or it wouldn't. But now I, there's that second leg of like needing to get someone's approval. Um, but then at the same time, like then you sort of get to flex a different muscle of needing to, you know, massage an idea, whereas you might not necessarily have had that before. Or having mm-hmm. it, you know, having something be edited sometimes by a great editor is really rewarding because somebody sort of helps you get the answer instead of just, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing that something could be perfected. And, you know, so I guess there's both sides to the coin. Have you figured out something that you wish you knew a little bit earlier or um, someone you know wanted to be a freelancer in the field, is there anything that you, you wanted to share with them and say, oh, this is something you need to 
think about or having be, beware of that or something. yeah I mean having a routine is the biggest thing and I really still kind of struggle with it not having a routine will make you insane I think people who are not freelance like really don't get that like people think that freelancing is like you like writing in bed all day or something like that or like going to the gym whenever you want or like you know <laughs> which yes I do but um <laughs> I was just gonna say did you just went to the gym before yeah we yeah no I do have more flexibility but at the same time like that stuff doesn't actually help you be productive you know so you have to have a routine you have to get up in the morning and you have to schedule your day more or less like a day you know like a normal day and whatever I'm not I'm not prescribing those hours like though you know whatever works for you but having a sort of set thing that you do is a huge is way more important than you'd think to your psychological state to your productivity to your like sleeping hours like all of these things you don't realize um diet like all all of those things that you would never think have anything to do with this stuff mm-hmm. do that's the number one um another thing is like make sure you are financially stable because it's really hard like you can go from making no money to making a lot of money and you have to be okay with that. I'm not even okay with that, but I am trying to be okay with that. I'm not trying to step on your toe, put you yeah. in like spotlight or something, but did you actually save up for a chunk before you decided no. to? No, you didn't. No. Why not? No, I, I'm not financially smart. <laughs> <laughs> but now you kind of share that wisdom yeah. because that's something you probably wish you had done. Yeah. Hey, I'm Randy. One day while cleaning out the closet of my old bedroom, I stumbled upon a three-part time capsule I'd made in 1998 when I turned 13. I meticulously detailed every part of my life, from an itemized list of school crushes to a report on the top five trends that year. Obviously, Tamagotchi, hair mascara, and blow-up chairs were among them. It's hilariously delusional and heartwarming as fuck. So join me as I look back at all the things that made growing up in the 90s so rad. And together we'll unbox Capsule 98. I discovered this um, time capsule that I had made in 98 when I was 12 and 13. And... Um, oh, that's why the name was 98. Capsule 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was wondering why 98. Yeah. yeah it's okay, a capsule okay. from 98. Okay. So, yeah. I also like time capsule was taken. Uh, I, <laughs> I... Yeah, it's so... cute. So cute, I'd yeah, say. Thanks. And I... It had, like, so many details from 1998. So, like, everything was documented. So, it was, like, clippings of newspapers... Diary entries, like little knickknacks from the year. Everything has like a written description beside it. So like a friggin' like whistle that I blew at a concert has like its own description. And, oh my! You know God. the elastics for my braces and like wow. band aids, just like all this ridiculous shit. And I, when I found it, I was like in heaven. Like I died, like just died looking through it. And so I decided to start an Insta. Well, first I didn't know what to do with it. I just sort of was like, this is amazing. And then I decided last year to start an Instagram account for it. Um, and just sharing the things that were inside of it um and it went viral it got picked up on buzzfeed and then it was picked up like buzzfeed good morning america and people and today show and you didn't anticipate that uh i mean i didn't anticipate i didn't know that it was gonna happen but like i obviously thought that it was cool and like that it should have but you didn't know it was gonna go viral no no i didn't know it was gonna go viral so i got a you know a bunch more followers and then i was just sort of thinking of like what to do with it and at the same time so many people have told me i need a podcast because i just talk all the time (laughs) Um, and i love talking about the things that i love so i just decided to like marry those two things and do it together and like to your point you know starting projects that you are passionate 
passionate about and, you know, that make you happy and sort of take your mind away from doing things that are just for money, you know? So, uh, yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. And I, I bet it was pretty exciting experience, like actually kind of like a self-discovery mm-hmm. when you open up the box of like this thing you made. Yeah. It was made by you, but yeah. it was a kind of strange feeling, a mix of like, oh, it's made by me, but at the same time, it was like so long ago. Well, it was funny to me just that I had like no recollection of doing it, which is insane because it was an entire year of documentation. Wow. I don't remember doing that. that that's, really? that's what's so weird. I mean, I remember doing things that are like, that are represented in there. Like I know I was always collaging my room and I know I was always right. like, I know I was obsessed with documentation and I know I was really into like certain things and like having like top five lists and like making sure everybody knew which <laughs> my favorite Spice Girl was mine you know like wait which one if you want my future forget my well, hard answer. I mean, I I was originally a Jerry girl, and then I turned to Posh, and I became, like, obsessed with Posh. But now I would say that it's probably, like, both. Like, equally. But po- probably Posh. I mean, okay. yeah. Posh. Put a stamp on it. Posh and Jerry. I don't know. I don't know. Jerry and Posh. I don't know. Okay, um, we don't have to make a decision. Yeah, I love yeah. them all. I love them. I've been, like, I, I never get sick of thinking about them like i i look at pictures of them like all the time i follow spice girls accounts i went to see spice world the other night like i am fat i am so i'm so in awe by how perfect they are it's insane okay i guess now i'm just gonna ask some okay. rapid fire questions sure. um so this question may sound like kind of odd if let's say robots or aliens are taking over the world everybody's gonna get brainwashed so nobody's going to remember you. You're not going to remember anybody or anything. But they say, okay, fine. I will give you guys three things or three memories you can remember. So once you wake up from that brainwash. You only these have three are memories. The, yeah, these are the three memories oh my you God, remember. I don't know. Um, oh, that's so hard. Uh, <laughs> definitely most of them would be taken up by my family. Probably... Definitely wouldn't be the fashion week type. Well, I mean, <laughs> ma- I, I don't know if I would make top three. Like, no, I mean, family and friends probably make up top three. Um, oh my god, I literally have no idea. Uh, Just think of a one then. Okay, and then you can keep that two for yourself. I don't know if this is like top, but one. I would say one good memory is probably like as a kid we used to do a lot of road trips to the states, um, and I loved doing that with my family that is also how i got exposed to tackiness um in america um probably being in florida like as a kid with my like family second question is that okay the same scenario robots aliens took over uh, but now you can remember three truths you wanted to share with others when you wake up from this brainwash process what do you mean like three things that you like wisdoms or a thing you learned that you feel like you should share with that with other people Anything you've done, like any the articles you wrote, any fashion week pictures, <laughs> you you've been photographed or gone, but now you have these three things you can share with other people to take away. Hmm. You have all day to sit here and let me, <laughs> let, let me think about this. Do you um, want to come back to this? Probably. Okay, let's do that. And the second is, what are you currently seeking? What am I currently seeking? Clarity. 
I wish that I had the answers to a lot of things in my life. I am sort of, like we said, it's like I'm in this kind of weird phase where I'm like, okay, I know certain things that I don't like. I know certain things that I don't want to do anymore. I know certain things I do want to do that are really hard to attain and finding some clarity and all that. Like my Pilates teacher is always saying, you know, trust the wisdom of your heart. And I'm like, what the fuck is my heart telling me? I don't oh my know. God. You know, and okay, I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I know this is a rapid fire question and not supposed to have any comment. Yeah. But that is so real. Like, yeah. that is some, like people like, you know, become like a buzzword now, like trust intuition, trust your gut. But yeah. sometimes I feel like my gut is not clear. No, no. My, my gut, gut is so messed. My gut used to be so clear. Like I used to be like, I literally from like the time I decided what I wanted to do with my life until like, two years ago, three, four, maybe like three years ago, I was so clear. I was like, yeah, of course, knew the answer to everything. And now I know the answer to nothing. So clarity, clarity is what I'm seeking. That's so cool. Um, If you can go anywhere in the world for a month and take off tomorrow, where would you go? One place? I don't know. So many places. Okay, what's the top three? Top three places I want to go mm-hmm. that I haven't been would be Japan, India, and... <laughs> Top two is fine with me. Yeah, Japan and India. <laughs> okay. Um, what other things... Maybe about- Spain. Spain. Well, I have been there, but I would like to go back. You would like to go back? What is the best advice you've ever given? I've used this like a million times, and... I feel bad because it's not mine. It's uh, somebody gave it to me. Um, yeah, the best advice you have you, yeah. given to I mean, professional, professional advice, which was be the mix of the workhorse and the show pony. So it means that you have to be able to do the work and you have to be good at your job, but you also have to be like a social butterfly. And um, I think that that's so true. I think a lot of people depend on one or the other and not both. And you have to be both to be like appealing for people to hire you or want to work with you. And the worst advice then? Worst advice? Worst advice would probably... It's kind of hard to say because, like, I feel like the stuff that I've always not responded to is, like, just do something because, like, you need a paycheck or, like, do something because you have to. And, you know, and, like, oh, well, maybe not everything works out and whatever. But, like, I guess that's advice that is hard to take. I don't know if it's not necessarily, like, maybe it's realistic and I'm just, like, ignoring it. But um, that's usually things I don't respond to. Okay, and last question is, we have to go back to the three truths. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I knew you know, like, oh, I thought well, you forgot mean, about it. What does it mean again, exactly? And like, give me an example. Um, for me, it's like, there's no shortcuts. Okay. I mean, the number one thing would probably be that the grass is always greener. You know, my mom has this expression that was like, her grandmothers or something that, you know, says that if everybody were to put their problems out on a clothesline, everybody would just take their own back. Um, Nobody would want anybody else's. So no matter how shitty you think your life is, somebody else's life is always shittier. Or like I and people, especially in the Instagram age, you can spend so much time being like jealous of people and, you know, wish that your life was as good as somebody else's. But the truth is that everybody has their own shit. And for as good as things look, things are always challenging for other people and everybody has their own path I guess that's another truth everybody has their own path in life and oh you know what I do have an answer I read this recently on Instagram and I think it's absolutely I hate quotes but I hate those like really I I hate those like affirmational quotes like I just well I sometimes they really work my mom uses them a lot and they really work in that like mom logic way but I just find them like Pinterest bait but I there was one that I read recently that I really really liked which was trust the timing of your life 
Um, and I think that that's so like something that I need to like listen to because you spend so much time being like, oh, I want this thing. Like, why can't I get it already? Or like, you know, even just clarity, even wanting clarity and you can't like have it. And, you know, I want a boyfriend. I don't have one. Or I want a this and I don't have one. And it's always annoying and you always think those things. Um, so I think that that trust the timing of your life. I, I guess it's really another way to say everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Trust the timing of your life. That's it. Oh, I have so much fun. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. I love talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening in and staying till the end. Please head to DearSeekers.com to see all the photos taken in Randy's home just after we recorded this episode. I would really appreciate it if you can open up your podcast app on your iPhone and leave Dear Seekers a review. Or head straight to SoundCloud and leave a comment. If you have Instagram, feel free to screenshot a picture and share with your friends. If you like, DM me and say hi. I'd love to meet you. We release each episode every other Thursday. See you in two weeks. Until then, happy seeking. Happy seeking.